So my brother enrolled at UT, and we grew up in North Texas in a fairly conservative town. But as soon as he started attending UT, he started changing and getting really cool in ways that were very different. He used to wear tucked-in Tommy Hilfiger shirts, but then he was like wearing sandals and got his tongue pierced, which was very wild. We went to visit him one weekend, and he took us to Mother's, and I didn't know that vegetarian restaurants were a thing, that you could go to a restaurant, no meat there. So that was really eye-opening to me. I'm Katie Moore, and this is I Love You So Much. Welcome to I Love You So Much, the Austin 360 podcast a show for everyone caught up in an ongoing love affair with Austin, even if it's complicated. I'm your host, Tali Mosley. I'm Omar Gayaga. And I'm Addie Broyles, coming to you from the shores of Lady Bird Lake in the offices of the Austin American Statesman. Joshua Bingaman, founder of Helm Boots, talks to us about starting one of Austin's most iconic style brands. He joins us to explain why he latched onto men's boots and his philosophy on why one should work at all. Austin 360 restaurant critic Matthew Odom recently raised hackles down in Lockhart for his critique of some legendary local barbecue restaurants. He comes in to tell us about the fallout from that article and why he feels the barbecue mecca has lost a step. In this week's web report, who thinks it's a good idea to have a convention in Austin about Food Network's Guy Fieri? Eric Webb tells us whether Austin's diners, divers, and drive-iners should be wary. We'll end, as always, with our recommendations in a toast. But first, Joshua Bingaman, the former founder of Progress Coffee, opened Helm Boots on East 6th Street when everyone told him it was a bad idea. He tells us why he did it anyway. Joshua Bingaman, welcome to I Love You So Much. Hi, thank you for having me. Okay, so let's set the scene here. It's 2003 in Austin, Texas. Someone is driving on the access road going uh, north on I-35 and arising up out of then um, a very different east side they see in green letters perched on a building progress. One word. Okay, that was you. (laughs) Yeah, that was me. We uh, started that in 03, took over the building. It took a long time to get that building up to par. But yeah, that that big word progress and it was lit remember that yes yeah. you had already been in the shoe business and then you got into the coffee business what the heck you're yeah. just a creative maker yeah. tell us a little bit about yeah. that and I was in music industry before that in LA so it's just like what am I doing I have mm-hmm. no idea uh, we visited here from San Francisco my wife and I we had a uh, my brother and I opened a shoe store in San Francisco in the Mission District which is not unlike the east side was here kind of in the barrio which the Mission District now is very different. Yeah, what the heck. Um, so that store's still there. We opened that. My brother and I, we were sneakerheads kind of before that was a trend. And you said it was vintage sneakers? We started it with vintage sneakers, then started buying dead stock from a lot of stores that didn't know what they had mm-hmm. then. Mm-hmm. And we're doing kind of cash. It was called the Subterranean Shoe Room. So you come oh. and you go down in this big basement and you have to like know somebody and blah 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 but yeah that that went really well started carrying new shoes men's and women's all kinds of styles franchised it my brother opened a clothing store um i needed a break so so that's why you moved to austin that's why I moved to, <laughs> the well, siren song was too strong well in uh 
San Francisco, there was not a coffee scene yet mm-hmm. at all. Mm-hmm. And there in was, the early aughts. Yeah. Wow. And there wasn't much at all in uh, Austin at that time. I remember I visited and I went to a little city mm-hmm. and I went to, what was that place called on Barton Springs? Austin Java? No. I don't even know if that Flipnotics. was. Flipnotics. That was it. Oh, my wow. gosh. It was so hot out outside. I remember it was July and I was like, where are we? Um so yeah, when when we visited, I was just like, okay, I'm going to take a break from retail. South Congress definitely wasn't what it is. I had a couple friends opening uh, factory people, mm-hmm. yeah, Thomas and Lee, um, and I thought I want to open a coffee shop. Mm-hmm. So when I had liked coffee, I'd worked at a coffee shop in L.A. when I was doing music there. And why that location? When I first got here, I met a guy named Kevin Burns. He has a place called. Austin Urban Space now, Urban Space Realtors. It got really big really fast. But he said, let's drive around. Let's look at what you're looking for. I said, I want an old warehouse. That's all I know. Well, let's not go east of I-35. We know that. That's the quote, wall. Hmm. So I said, let's go east of I-35. As late as 2003. This is what blows my mind. This, this is not 1983 or 1973. No, 2002, because that building took me over a year wow. to get accessible. Wow. <laughs> it why? Was, and so you yeah, insisted. We, why did you, why is that where you wanted to go? Well, in the mission, my brother had found that store on Valencia and 20th, mm-hmm. and that was not a safe area at the time. But the store was so rad and something we've just always been able to do temperature wise where it's like, man, this this is going to be the next cool spot. Mm-hmm. It just is where artists are starting to move, where we have some friends in a band, where there's some creativity film wise and art wise. That's where it starts mm-hmm. usually because artists usually get squeezed out of other locations as is. So, but you didn't stop thinking about shoes. No, something happened where, and I had a friend from Houston remind me this, this weekend where he said, man, I remember in 05 or 06, we were having beers in your backyard or something. And you said, I think the shoe bug will bite me again. Mm -hmm. Like I want to get back in it. And I was like, I said that. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, uh, three or four years into progress. It wasn't just the shoe bug, it was the boot bug. The boot bug this time, So tell us about boots. So this was in 2009, you decided to start an artisanal shoe wear company for men. Yeah. Is that how you describe Helm? Yeah, now. Yeah. Yeah, then it was... My when my brother and I had done the sneakers, I I got into boots. I started buying vintage hiking boots, hunting boots, um, cowboy boots, and uh, just kind of had a passion for those. Mm-hmm. As he went further into sneakers, I went further into boots. I don't mm-hmm. I don't know why. Just kind of that whole uh, grunge sheen that probably still survived in me. Um, so, and you're yeah. like, I know where I'll go, Texas. <laughs> Texas, get, get me some <laughs> cowboy boots. But when I was wearing cowboy boots here, they were like, city boy, what are you doing? Cut your hair. Uh, yeah, I was visiting my aunt in Istanbul, and uh, she's lived there for a long time, almost 20 years now, and uh, actually met a guy that makes shoes. She does a lot of textiles, rugs, and mm-hmm. like kid limbs and cottons, and uh, drew some boots. Literally six pictures of six styles that were just kind of amalgams of some of my favorite dress shoes and sneakers and military boots and hiking boots. Uh, Submitted those to him. We had samples within days. It was all handmade there. So we had samples, and then uh, the minimum was 100 pair per style. And I still had a credit card from the shoe store that had a pretty high (laughs) high maximum on it. I think I'm still paying down that card. Well, literally, I'm serious. Uh, <laughs> so I ordered a hundred pair of each style. So six hundred shoes. Seven hundred. Seven hundred. Seven hundred. It was seven hundred. I drew seven. That's a lot styles. of shoes. That's yeah. a big bet for yeah. an idea. Yeah. For it a was, hobby. 
Well, I mean, Progress was a big bet. Yeah. So was the roaster, which we had started a coffee roaster about three years into Progress. Whole Foods approached us with a local loan shareholder or yeah. something. So I had all the boots delivered to that roaster. And Just boxes of, <laughs> can you imagine how good that Shoes. must have smelled? The coffee <laughs> roasting, the leather. The leather. Yeah, it was yeah. fun. It was crazy. So we had a big party at the roaster. And wow. Uh, I invited everybody that I knew then that was a friend that was starting businesses here. We were all kind of the forerunners I've heard now of, you know, like Liz and uh, Moody. And These are all f- one name. These are the one oh, name sorry. famous people of Austin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so how, we're talking about Liz Lambert, yeah. James, James Moody. <laughs> yeah, James P. Moody. But it's fun. We found those pictures the other night and we're looking through them. We're like, oh, my God, look who was here and look who came. And, and it was literally like Bobby Johns and the guys at Stag were just about to open. I don't even know if they had opened yet, but they all came and everybody brought friends and there weren't that many of us, but we set it up really cool. Aaron Franklin had just started his little trailer in our parking lot. Selling a little brisket, I imagine. Yeah, yeah. he had just started. I can't yeah. remember what it was. The sandwich, the oh, man. tipsy Texan. That that little thing. Named after, is it still called that? Yeah. yeah. I don't stand in the line. The tipsy Texans um, are David and Allen, uh, David Allen and Joe yeah, Eichler David. of the t- tipsy Texan cocktail yeah. company. Yeah. And this is also, we're, we're really honing in though. That was a tipping point in Austin where yeah. just what you're talking about, this was a, a collab, not collaboration, but a convergence of all these people who were making things and in an entrepreneurial way. Exactly. And, and this is uh, mid to late aughts. Um, 2009, 2010. Yeah. And as these seeds are being planted, you are getting inspired. I'm narrating your story. You tell me. Yeah, no, you tell me. I'm listening. I'm like, write this down. Somebody no, we're helping down. connect the dots, though. <laughs> that this was really... Yeah, I'm but you, you guys see my face. I'm like, wait. That you had all the boots over there at Progress, yeah. and you decided, you know what? Maybe I should open up a store. Well, because you had been doing pop-ups. Yeah. It was October 09. Moody, I don't think... He hadn't done the Mohawk yet. Liz had Right, it was the like hotel. the Black Spade think, or the Ace or something. Yeah, it was horrible. I think San Jose either was opening or had just opened. I think it had yeah. too, but there's yeah. nothing else really mm-hmm. on the street aside blackmail and things Cosmico that had been Cosmico hadn't there. happened. No, no, no way. She was, she was not uh, yeah. the hotelier that we met And her, to yeah, Amy Cook was a dear friend of mine, mm-hmm. so that was all part of that. Uh, okay, so yeah, um, launched it there. Uh, Aaron catered it, he and his wife. <laughs> That was awesome, Stacy. Okay, so we did that, and then in Moody was starting something called Gorilla Suit. So they kind of took us under their wing, built a website for me. Because, I mean, I was like, what do I do? Stag picked us up. Mm-hmm. This was all homies. You know, it wasn't right. like, let's make a lot of money. Right. It was, what the hell has Joshua done? Let's help. Let's have fun. Mm-hmm. We all helped each cool. other. Uh, Jen and, yeah. I mean, Home Slice, all of those. So, they, I'm trying to picture the faces that were there. Yeah. We were all there, and that was And we that. have interviewed these people. <laughs> I know. These that are all lots of guests so from nice. the show. So yeah. at Joseph. Some, at a certain point, you decided to get out of coffee and just fully commit to Boots. And I just wanted to find out sort of at what point did that the scales tip and you became officially a, you aren't a cobbler. You have these made now in Maine. Uh, yeah. But at some point, you decided to jump all into Helm. Yeah, I think it was... Uh, some people stepped in and were helping manage at Progress, and I, I honestly can't remember what year it was. By then, it was 2012, probably, mm-hmm. and we had opened a little store for Helm up on East 6th. Mm-hmm. A couple who moved here from Georgia, uh, Chris and Hillary Bilheimer, mm-hmm. I mean, just took the reins with me. Uh, he's now the head designer at Alamo Draft House. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, she 
we opened an office on East Cesar Chavez. People started coming in there to try on boots and buy boots in our little office. So we were like, let's open a store. And can I ask you a question about the boot trend? Because just as it seems that you've honed an instinct for districts that are about to take off, Mm -hmm. do you think that that served you in niche industries are about to take off like a coffee scene yeah. or sneakers or boots like were boots this thing that were like sort of bubbling up in men's fashion and you hit at the right time or was it already a trend and you rode the waves like why and I know that you were personally interested in boots from a design point of view yeah. it's, it's always just been sheer passion where it's like I want to do something that I can't find i.e. the cafe right. that's a community space that we have art and music at literally weekly mm-hmm. it's not just a Hey, the Joe the Plumber's going to play, or it's like we're booking friends bands. Matt the electrician just heard that and is sorry, Matt. <laughs> no, but like these bands that are like Midlake and these guys where it's like Tyco and things where it's friends and they come play and then now it's like stadiums. Um, I don't, I don't intend to do that. It's even with the shoes. It was like I want a boot that I can't find that's not Red Wing and Wolverine and whatever it is that are these work boots that then weren't cool. You weren't, you weren't going to Brooklyn and seeing all the guys wearing mm-hmm. them. Mm-hmm. Um, but something that was a little bit more mature that you could dress up a little. Right. So I couldn't find it. And it ended up becoming unisex. A lot of women mm. were wearing it. And that kind of wasn't that tomboy trend at the time either. So I think I've just fallen into it, but not like trying real hard to figure out what's next. It's just sure. like, okay, I want to start up a, a boot and shoe company. You couldn't have told me in a million years I'd do that. Well, good design travels far. Yeah, yeah. And it lasts a long time. Yeah, trying and to keep it classic. It's, and it's not trendy, you know. Yeah. You've got classic designs. I wanted to ask, you know, Austinites have maybe not the best reputation. Maybe this is just because I was on a fashion makeover show no. that we don't have the best reputation Oops. for having the best style. Yeah. I mean, and particularly in like a hot place where a lot of men wear flip-flops. I mean, you, this is sort of the antithesis of the flip-flop right. phase of a man's life. Right. Tell us about that. Yeah, I think it is, like you were saying, having started it and bringing it to the U.S., that became a big passion. And really all the the three or four factories remaining in the U.S. are uh, all, I mean, they're old, they're family, like multi-generation. So to be limited with the things I can do at those up until now that were large enough that I can do some old patterning, all I wanted to make was boots. I wore boots year round. Mm -hmm. Most of the guys in San Francisco that weren't sneakerheads wore boots year round. Everywhere at LA, everywhere I've lived, even in Oklahoma growing up there where I'm from, I just wore hiking boots or um, I wanted- Do you think men are just taking style more seriously? I think they are, but I wanted to, I wanted to offer something that was a little lighter and a little more breathable that they could wear um, with denim or with khakis or with a suit, you Mm -hmm. know, and, and do say, hey guys, uh, what's on your feet if you're looking down all day matters kind of builds the rest of your outfit mm-hmm. and it's always given me kind of a confidence and I think we can do that for you mm-hmm. or your wife can help us do that for you mm-hmm. right 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 no <laughs> that's, but that's happened but like an injection of formality can project a tone for the rest of your day mm-hmm. and how you interact with people yeah. if what you put on is is fit right just if we can help you step up just a little bit and it be classic and it be something that's fashionable in a sense of you're not wearing stuff that'll wither in your wardrobe or you're not wearing stuff that should be gone a decade ago. Mm-hmm. We've done our job. Right. Okay, cool. So <laughs> th- great advice. Okay, good. <laughs> that's the pull quote of the interview. <laughs> Write that down too. I don't know. That, yeah, that just came to me. Okay. So I want to talk a little bit about your family, Joshua, okay. because you guys live in Bastrop. Right where I feel is has quickly become an artist cove for <laughs> <laughs> Who like thunk? 
Yeah, for these trades tradespeople skills. Yeah. Um, so your family, you've got three kids. Um, they are all they're Waldorf or they are headwaters or alternative schools. And it seems like you guys embrace an ethos of DIY that in your case has really worked out because I feel like Austinites coming here now think, well, to make it in this city, I just have to be super practical. I have to be a developer. I have to go into software. IT, yeah. IT, yeah. That's like, that's how I'm going to make it in Mm -hmm. Austin. But it seems like you guys have not intentionally gamed the system exactly. Mm -hmm. It's just that you and your wife and your kids have done the things you've wanted to do and make it work for you. So, Mm -hmm. yes, you own Helm. We don't also live in a high-rise in downtown Austin, but we live in Bastrop where we can have this artsy DIY existence. So was that a conscious choice that you made, or is it just you and your wife's approach to life and career influenced the way you raised your kids? Right. I think we had always said and decided we're going to do what we're going to do and then uh, not deal with the results, but here's how we we care about each other and we love each other and this is how we see life. As children entered the family, that didn't change. Mm -hmm. So I think starting to say, why can't we have life the way we want it to be? But that's been an uphill battle, an uphill challenge, because people from outside of us are going, what are you doing? Like Mm -hmm. from the music business, opening a shoe store, what? Mm -hmm. Starting a coffee shop, what? Mm -hmm. The goal is apparently not to not bend the bottom line. Right. A little more more complex than that. Right. No, I want to interpret what you're saying, and you tell me if you... If, if I'm putting it correctly, but it sounds like you're starting from a baseline point of passion, like how do we like to spend our days mm-hmm. and then mold the logistics of our life around that. Yeah, exactly. And so it could be like living someplace that's more affordable that allows us to be able to live out those passions. Sure. I think it's backwards for a lot of people. They feel like, okay, well, um, I need to do the thing that's practical, like that's my baseline, Mm -hmm. and practical means a certain level of income or a certain school district. I need to do those things to ensure success, whereas it sounds like you're saying that success comes from fulfillment, like a sense of career and creative fulfillment. You have to decide that first, that what's in my heart is what I'm going to do. Um, and that will ultimately give me the opportunity to have what we need, not necessarily what we want if we're talking about fiscal or material possessions. But really, you hear people, it's like, I made a lot of money and I still wasn't happy. You know, mm-hmm. it's like if we make a lot of money, that's secondary. The happiness and being present, having joy in your life and knowing where you are and why is what's first. Mm-hmm. And then having people in your life like that. And then everything outside of that is more of a result than vice versa. That's neat. Um, Well, thank you, Joshua, so much. We have really enjoyed finding out a little bit more about you and your history here. And I can just take myself back to 2009, 2003, these these really important moments in Austin's history. And you've been there for a lot of them. So um, thanks for coming in. Yeah, thank you again for having me. Criticizing a city's barbecue? Those are fighting words, declared the Houston Chronicle of an article about Lockhart's restaurants from Austin 360's Matthew Odom. He came in to tell us why people were so passionate in their reactions to his critique. 
Matthew Odom. Welcome to I Love You So Much. How are you, sir? Welcome back. Great, guys. How are y'all? We are great. We are really intrigued by your, not only Lockhart barbecue story, but the reaction it's gotten and the reaction to the reaction and everyone talking about barbecue in Texas. So first, can you give us a lay of the land? Can you tell us what the original article was? And then we can talk about how it was received. You know, the original article was I was headed down to meet my folks in Lockhart for lunch. Uh, They hadn't been in a few years and they asked if I wanted to meet them. And I said, sure. So I was meeting them at Black's. And, you know, people always, not always, but people occasionally ask me, what's your favorite place in Lockhart? I try and go down there every year or two and check out different, check out the four different places. Um, But I hadn't gone down and eaten at all of them uh, in a while. I'd been to Kreitz, I guess, about a year ago. Uh, and Smitty's about a year and a half ago. Anyways, I thought, you know what? I might as well make a trip out of this and just hit all four Turn of them. Turn this into content. Yeah, I was like, hey, here's a story. Um, and honestly, it was good. the purpose of it was go down, eat there, and then rank them. So when people said, hey, where's your favorite place to go in Lockhart? I, it's usually between Kreitz and Blacks. It used to be Smitty's for me, but I wanted to have an informed answer. And of course, you can't go down and eat the entire menu at all four of them in one day. So what I did was I decided to use brisket as kind of the measuring stick. Now, as I said in the article, um, that's not necessarily what Lockhart is known for. They're known for different things, uh, some for their sausage, maybe at Kreitz, or their pork chop at Kreitz, or their in-cut pork chop at at Smitty's. So they have different strengths. They cook their brisket at Kreitz a little bit differently. They cook it a little bit hotter and faster than they do here in Austin. So I don't know that brisket is the the perfect measuring stick but it's kind of the the benchmark that you can have across all four because they all they all serve serve brisket and brisket's kind of what we're known for in central texas anyways so i figured i'd go try the brisket at all four of them and then rank them and obviously i wasn't going down to write something negative or to write a hit piece i mean that's not what we do i wasn't trying to hot take and get a bunch (laughs) of page views or get people talking i just wanted to be of service to readers and say hey here are the spots here's what i like um, in order. And as it turned out, it, I had some r- kind of rough experiences. Right. Okay. So let's talk about some of those rough experiences because I think Lockhart is known not only, um, let's see, gastron- gastronomically, but also nostalgically as a barbecue home, like where people feel like they need to go experience once in their lifetime it's like it's like the the uh the stuff of many a barbecue road trip like we're yeah. road tripping let's go to lockhart exactly yeah. and there was that like gosh like a uh, texas monthly article many many years ago that was saying is the best barbecue in texas in taylor or is it lockhart like pitting these two well-known barbecue cities against each other so it's something it's the stuff of legend and yet what did you find intrepid food critic well you know part of the thing is there's it's a town of what a couple thousand people and there's four barbecue places there. There's now also a trailer on the edge of town that I've been uh, told about that I need to stop uh, at, apparently. Um, so that's, you know, one one great barbecue place for per 500 people, which is a pretty good number. So it, it was rightly known as the capital of Texas barbecue due to the numbers, due to the history. You know, Blacks has been around, I think, since 1932. Um, and a lot of family legacies in the, these barbecue places. That's right. Kreitz and Smitty's split off from uh, one family and have been around in one form or fashion for about 100 years. So, you know, these places have been doing it forever. And, you know, the idea of barbecue was a way to preserve meat, sometimes not the best cuts of meat. Um, they're not using um, pr- 
prime beef the way some places in Austin and other markets are doing. So it was never meant as kind of, uh, it was never meant to be like a culinary delight. It was a comforting way of eating. It was about being with friends and family and with neighbors. It was about community. And that's why I still like to go down there. Um, whether you're a stranger, whether you're visiting from Austin or visiting from Sweden or whether you live in Lockhart, everybody's kind of treated like family there and everybody kind of feels comfortable there. Um, so that's, that's largely what it's always been about. And it's still about that. I think the problem I realized after the fact is that, you know, this brisket at least, maybe not the pork chop uh, that Daniel Vaughn tweeted about a couple of days later that he loves so much at Kreitz. But, yeah, why don't you go marry Daniel? <laughs> you marry a pork chop. So, but this brisket, I don't think, is meant to be held up to the same kind of critical scrutiny that something at like Franklin would be or La Barbecue. It's just, it's a different, it's a different beast, literally and figuratively. So I can understand why people um, would get upset and would have their feelings hurt. This, and you know, I, I heard, um, I'm not on Facebook, but somebody told me one pitmaster was saying, you know, I bet he doesn't know how to do this or can't appreciate what kind of hard work it is. And I can definitely appreciate how hard the work is. And no, I definitely couldn't do it as well as they do it. And I have a ton of respect for those people who show up at all hours and, and sweat in those pit rooms and um, have been working to feed their communities and their families uh, for decades. So I've got a ton of respect for that. This was just me going down and seeing, hey, how good's the brisket right now? And it turned out the brisket wasn't that great. Um, it was better at Kreitz than it was at other places, it was it was pretty tender at Blacks, but it just kind of had a, a a faint acrid uh, flavor to the smoke. So, yeah, I don't know that Lockhart brisket is meant to be held up to the same critical scrutiny as you know s- something in Austin, Texas, possibly, or a fine dining restaurant, or even you know a nice casual restaurant here in town. So, I think the argument against the whole idea of the trip would be, well, one, maybe you don't know what you're talking about, but two. That that's that's not what we're really doing down here, and why don't you have a little respect for the way we do things? The other side of that coin is, if you're going to be known as the capital of Texas barbecue, and you're going to get all those tourist dollars and all those people come into your town, then you should at least be expected to be held up to some kind of critical scrutiny. You don't, you shouldn't be able to just get away with with coasting on on your name. So, you know, I think it's fair to go down and and give it a taste and see what's what. I certainly wasn't trying to to stir up a fire. <laughs> let's, well, let's talk about some of the actual reactions because I saw. I mean, the Houston Chronicle wrote about it. Several blogs wrote about it. It was mentioned on podcasts. Like, it was a very immediate, big reaction. I mean, you had even had like city officials reach out to you. The mayor of Lockhart sent me an email. Um, he and a man who I identified as the head of the Chamber of Commerce down there, who obviously has a vested interest in um, successful businesses in Lockhart. Uh, both took exception with me, and then one other reader via email did. But by and large, the... the but wait, but wait, pause. Like, can I say that they suggest they made a suggestion to you for how you show up next time? Because I think the end of my article said something about I'd, I'd be back to Lockhart um, you know, if they'd have me, if they didn't put up a, a sign that said, Big City Critics Not Welcome. And uh, the mayor said that I was welcome back, but next time he suggests that I return hat in hand. Either as a sign of humility or possibly all the better to decapitate you. <laughs> Slap me on my, my head. Um, <laughs> you won't need a cap after this. <laughs> but besides that, uh, you know, it, most of the emails, I'd say 95% of the emails I got uh, agreed with me and said that they'd had similar experiences down there. Um, again, you know, my 
esteemed uh, friend Daniel Vaughn went and had a great pork chop at Kreitz a couple days later, um, which I don't doubt. Although somebody sent me a text the following day who uh, knows his way around a barbecue pit of a pork chop that looked much worse than the pretty one that Daniel posted on Twitter. And he said, I didn't get the Daniel Vaughn pork chop. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds like if we can boil down your whole original article, Matthew, what you were saying was there are, n- there are now innovative techniques that exist in Austin and elsewhere that are pushing the quality forward. And in Lockhart, it's comforting. Uh, sure, go down and experience it for all the reasons that you mentioned. But if you're looking for innovation, it's happening elsewhere. Is that a fair summary of your article? Well, I think if you're looking for, at least in terms of brisket, a certain level of, of quality and cooking style um, that you that they don't necessarily replicate down in Lockhart. Um, but, you know, maybe go for the sausage or the pork chop. But Lockhart by no means is the brisket capital of, of Texas, I'd say. Uh, but, of course, it does still have everything that you love about being down there, the spaces and the pressed tin roof. Uh, the Preston ceiling at Smitty's and the open fire pit there and the big uh, chopping room and uh, at Kreitz, it, it's, it still has all of that stuff. And you can walk around the square afterwards and the, the county, Caldwell County Courthouse, and you can meet some nice folks at the table next to you at Black's after you stand in that little hallway. Okay, see, Chamber of Commerce, but like, the, but, look at all these things that Matthew's suggesting. But they don't have a cat do. cafe. You got to go to Austin for that. <laughs> okay, no so cat cafe. Let's pull back a little bit. So, Omar, I, sushi game is I, whack. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> the barbecue actually, sushi? <laughs> I actually don't know the answer to this question, Omar. Are you a barbecue person? Oh, yeah. I, I literally ate at Black's this last weekend in New Braunfels. Black's opened a New Braunfels location, and I took my parents, and it was it was great. I mean, and for brisket in that area, it's it's probably the best brisket around. But if I'm getting a pork chop, I'm going to Cooper's. You know? Okay, okay. So Somebody wh- told me Black's in San Marcos the other day was the best thing south of Austin right now. Not it's including San Antonio. The bris- of the small towns. The fatty brisket at Black's in New Braunfels is the best brisket I've had in New Braunfels. But, okay, but, so, but Cooper's has a lot of other good stuff. All right, so let, Cooper's but, in New Braunfels or in Lano? Uh, New Braunfels. Okay. The well, sausage, though, at Black's is whack. Okay, inside sausage baseball. Let me just ask you a question. Are you in it for the culinary experience? Or are you in, there in it for... The vibe and the community and I, I like don't all give the a crap other about any of that stuff. No, you no. just care about how I'm it there tastes. for the meat. I'm there. Nerd. To uh, no. He's there to tweet. I, no, I'm <laughs> there to eat with my family and have some some fatty brisket. Like I'm not. I'm not really there for the ambiance or anything. In fact, right. half the time I will pack it up and take it home. Like I, I will order to go and take it take it home. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Put so, ketchup on your steak. Okay, so Odom, what is the <laughs> most <dare> the <laughs> last question? What's the most interesting piece of feedback you've gotten? Because it sounds like a, the general reaction to your article was, well, at least someone said it. That seems to have been, by and large, the reaction you got. That a lot of people were feeling this way, but you finally said this. Said this. It also seems like it got turned into a small town versus a big city s- sort of sentiment. But what's the most interesting piece of feedback you got, like that you weren't expecting? Uh, I think it's just telling that how passionate and sensitive uh, these barbecue folks are. I mean, I think barbecues come under closer scrutiny with the rise of barbecue blogs and podcasts and, of course, Texas Monthly's lists over the years. But there's been increased interest and scrutiny with barbecue. And I think uh, that's not something that they we're used to and I, I think that they have a real personal connection to the cooking that they do and the places where they do it and what it means to them 
and their families into the tradition of it. And you just see, I know that, you know, chefs at fine dining restaurants and at sushi restaurants and wherever care just as much about their food as these barbecue folks do. But it's just a very personal relationship that people have, especially the people cooking the food, but also the people who have grown up on the food. And so it, it's, it, it was just, it wasn't a surprise to me, but I think it kind of reinforced just how folksy that food is, meaning of the people. And, um, it, you know, it's a, it's a good, it's a good reminder. And it, you know, I, it warms my heart to see people, uh, be so passionate and get so excited in defense of their friends and, and their family and, and their ways. Uh, and just because I don't like the way a brisket tastes doesn't mean, uh, that I'm throwing, uh, water on anybody's fire is that a saying <laughs> i think that makes smoke sure. <laughs> that's a nice note to end on i like that um matthew odom thank you for coming in and talking about the controversy thanks guys Eric Webb here for a web report. Eric, what is going on in your world this week? Well, this week, I've taken a trip to Flavortown, USA. <laughs> Heard of it. Yeah. Okay, so Guy Fieri. We all know Guy Fieri. We might not love Guy Fieri. Maybe we do love Whether Guy Fieri. Whether we like it or not, though, we know of him. I think we all have a little Guy Fieri in us. I think we do. Guy, hot Cheetos. Guy's Fieri and Girl's Fieri all. He is a force <laughs> to be reckoned with. I think we can all agree. And... Guy Fieri fans have an event coming up in Austin this fall that is tailor-made to their donkey sauce-loving interests. <laughs> because Guy Fieri Con, Gross. baby, well, I mean, that's what they call it, is coming to Austin uh, October 20th. Okay, so here's my question. Will Guy Fieri be in attendance, or is this simply a fan-based gathering event? This seems to be more of a gathering of Fieri acolytes. It's okay. not also, and so here's the thing, you know how... There's also a donut museum pop-up coming, and it's not like, I don't really know if it's actually a museum. A convention seems a generous <laughs> word for this event. Maybe an overstatement. This uh, is like the gathering of the juggalos of food. <laughs> no, I think the gathering of juggalos is perhaps more of a convention than this is. <laughs> this is a bar crawl, Yeah, yeah. It's a Guy Fieri-themed bar crawl. Oh, oh wait, Eric, wait, wait. now you're just talking semantics. Wait, this is bars, not diners, dives, and... Drive-ins. Diners, drive-ins, and dive. It is not, which actually, now that you say that, that would be much more on theme. Yeah. But this is the third annual Guy Fieri Con. It started in New York. And uh, if you go to Austin360.com, you can see uh, in our blog about this, we linked off to a gallery of guys and girls Fieri trawling the streets <laughs> of New York in full costume. Um, but this year, they are expanding uh, across the country. And Do512 has an event listing for it already. And there's also going to be one uh, coming up in Milwaukee. Yeah. So when I read that, I thought Milwaukee, like that's a nice fit for Guy Fieri Con. Austin, I just was not aware that the, enough of a fan base existed for T- such a gathering. <laughs> Tali Mosley says, Milwaukee, you're no Austin. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Elitist. And, and you know, I think you make a good point, Tali. But I think what you're missing out is that while there might not be like so many Guy Fieri fans in Austin, there's a lot of alcohol fans. <laughs> Hence, bar crawl. Mm-hmm. Excellent now, here, here's the thing on the, on our Twitter account. I actually posted a link to the write up that Eric did about this, 
And I had someone come right back at me like, is that even a real thing? And I, I had to go look it up and go, maybe it isn't. Maybe we're spreading fake news. Uh-huh. Vice actually did a yeah. whole piece like going to one of these and, and chronicling it. So this is a real thing that real people do. I want to know they're real people, but that people, <laughs> guy and girl theories do on a weekend. Hashtag journalism. In Milwaukee. Maybe. Okay, so here's what Omar and I were discussing, Eric, and give us your take on this, because I remember circa maybe 2010, 2011, there was that epic takedown in the New York Times of Guy Fieri's restaurant. The mm-hmm. Times Square one, yeah. The Times Square one, yeah. And it was just dripping with condescension. And donkey sauce. And donkey sauce. And it became emblematic of a couple of things, like A, just a glorious piece of um, of backhandy food writing, but second of all, like... Um, I don't know, elitist, uh, West Coast liberal, like looking down on suburban chain stuff. And so then there was a backlash to the backlash of that kind of snobby attitude towards Guy Fieri stuff. And I'm trying to locate where exactly an event like this would be because I don't know if these are genuine Guy Fieri fans or like, like hate attenders like ironic, ironically wearing like, like they're their, doing yeah. it for the lulls. <laughs> ironically wearing their flame shirts and blonde spike wigs. Yeah. Well, I think there's two ways you could look at it. I think there's going to be a lot of hate attenders, and also just to clarify, this is people showing up in Guy Fieri costume just to go do a bar crawl and drink. So I don't think th- I think the Guy Fieri part is mostly an aesthetic thing. I think it's going to be a lot of irony attendees because if there's one thing we've learned, it's that people in this new millennium, love to do things ironically. Uh, but I think you're right. I think there are some people that probably like just think it's going to be a fun time. It might not be going in a derisive way, you know? I mean, to get to your point about the whole like chain restaurants idea, I love an Olive Garden. I love a Red Lobster. <laughs> I love a Taco Bell, you know? I literally ate at Olive Garden yesterday. Oh my gosh. Okay, so Olive Garden. Taste. Olive Garden. <laughs> Olive Garden, we went there when I was pregnant because inexplicably, that was what I craved during pregnancy. And we got the best service I've ever gotten in my entire life at a restaurant. We left with the server's business card. Oh, wow. <laughs> now, now, can I ask you a question? That's you went, the service you level. You went five years ago and never went back. <laughs> yeah, the great yeah actually, okay, that's true. That part is true. You only Check have me. to visit your family every few years, though, don't you? <laughs> and when you're at Olive Garden, you're what? Family. Well, I have one more question for you, Eric. What even is donkey sauce? Okay, so I Googled this because I did not know. <laughs> I only did. knew of go- go- Donkey Sauce's theoretical existence and had never seen it in front of my very eyes. It's an aioli of sorts, and apparently Guy Fieri is very sensitive about this fact, and he has had to clarify. <laughs> no, it's an aioli, and it's a blend of several different types of sauces uh, that pack a maximum flavor punch. Apparently. And, and oh, of course like they a, do. Like a donkey's kick. Yes. <laughs> Got it. And you had to use that in a headline. There go donkey sauce. Yeah. Well, uh, there is an alternative for the Guy Fieri con. If you are not into that, there's actually a, a kitten and cat convention happening at the end of August. Look it up. It's also on do five one two. Just giving you an alternative. Here, <laughs> in case you're not into You've got two options pl- in this world. <laughs> kitten con or pl- Guy Fieri. Plenty of potential for your Instagram is what we're saying. Okay, guys, uh, we'd love to hear and your gals. and got and gals we would love to hear your thoughts on guy fieri con eric webb thank you so much for bringing the hard-hitting news to i love you so much it's always a joy to visit flavor town with y'all And now we've come to the part of our show we call A Toast, where everybody will share something they're interested in. Joining us today is Joshua Bingham of Helm Boots, but we're going to start with Tolly. What do you got? Yeah, sure. So 
Last Friday night, Ross and I were zipping around Netflix looking for something to watch, and we randomly found this documentary called The Last Laugh. And the whole premise of this piece is comics and how they've dealt with the Holocaust. And there are a variety of voices in it. Mel Brooks is Mm -hmm. one of the main voices. They also follow a couple of survivors. Mm -hmm. All during the documentary, Sarah Silverman is another person that they talk to a lot. And it's really fascinating because there isn't a central thesis to this documentary, such as, yes, we should make jokes about or, or concerning the Holocaust or no, we should not. It's just getting different people's perspectives. Mm-hmm. And I was really compelled by something Sarah Silverman said, which is, you know, to freeze something in a place of trauma always keeps it in the dark place. But if you can rest- if you can bring some light to that situation, it can take away its power. Mm-hmm. So that was interesting. And then Mel Brooks said something even more specific about the way you point humor at the Holocaust, and that is to actually not make a joke about the Holocaust or Jewish people, but you can make fun of Nazis, you can make, and that that's actually very common to mm-hmm. feminize Nazis or to make them look buffoonish, and that's a way to take away their power. But he also said an interesting thing about time, and he had this pithy little equation, which is like trauma plus time equals comedy. So one of his first breakout movies was about the Inquisition. And it's like, no one is so sensitive about the Inquisition now that they can't laugh about it. <laughs> um, True. You start laughing. You know, but he made the producers right after the Holocaust. And so that was a gamble because mm-hmm. it was fresh for many people. So as a movie, he taped in an audience's reaction and showed them shocked and appalled at um, the uh, the kind of centerpiece song, which is Springtime for Hitler. Mm-hmm. And so then you as a viewer are on the outside watching this shocked reaction. And now what you're laughing at is the fact that someone didn't get that time memo. The mm-hmm. fact that like, and you're like, wow, how could you make fun of something so soon? But... What it does is, even if you're not laughing, it just kind of creates space, and it's interrogating, mm-hmm. when is the right time to talk about it? How do we talk about it? And um, so that that was just interesting for me on a comedy technique mm-hmm. level. But what I really took away from it was, wow, getting to hear from a survivor. Like, that is fascinating. I mean, if you don't think the Holocaust survivors are out there anymore, they are still out there. Mm-hmm. and. It is so important that we keep their stories alive so that we don't repeat our mistakes. Mm-hmm. And 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 the same mistake hasn't repeated all over the world. Mm-hmm. We need to not bury this. We need mm-hmm. to keep on talking about it. And the, jokes are how we do it. Jokes are how we yeah. do it. Yeah, if discussion is how we do it. I mean, like, the tone, the tone can be different, but we need to keep these stories alive, not just for Jewish people, but all people who have been through genocide so that it really hits us not on that statistical level, like six million Jews died, but what someone's personal experience was. Like Mm -hmm. she was at a public swimming pool playing with her friends and then the police showed up. Mm. You know, so like that, like that, like getting it down to that Mm -hmm. personal level. So that's what I really, and and thinking about the border crisis right now, I've thought about like that while the 2000 number doesn't get me, hearing someone's personal story does. Mm -hmm. So, The Last Laugh. I recommend it because it's funny and also because it's uh, edifying. Topical. Good. Yeah. Joshua, uh, Joshua. Bingham. Hey. Hey, What I'm do Joshua. you got? Um, 
I recently started reading or read a book uh, by Michael Chabon uh, called Pops, and it's essays uh, that are poignant and also comedic about things that could be sad or difficult or, or cause anger uh, about his father and about him being a father and more or less raising his children in a way of seeing who they are and their spirit and instead of kind of trying to form or uh, control them more kind of just being like a bumper pads and letting them grow into who they are and uh it's been really cool it's been really interesting because they've all caught him way off guard Mm -hmm. which is i think probably the way it should be Mm -hmm. they're they're born as little independent spirits and to just help kind of nurture that instead Mm -hmm. of try to squash it or control it Mm -hmm. or make them what you want them to be but but it's been great i've been laughing and maybe tearing up a little so but no yeah he writes great and it's a great book it's called pops cool love that parenting philosophy So I got to see a really cool movie at Laguna Gloria, part of their green screen film series in the amphitheater of Laguna Gloria, right next to the actual Laguna. And this movie is actually what I'm recommending. I mean, the film series is great. Hopefully you'll get a chance to check out one. Um, But Daughters of the Dust is a 1991 movie that was directed by a woman named Julie Dash, an African-American woman. And she it's a story about a single day on the beach on the Gullah Islands and an African-American family. Some of them have left the Gullah community for the North, for big city life, for other opportunities. Some of them have stayed. The people up North have come down for the day to spend an afternoon. And it's just the whole, it's the cinematic wonder to Carrie Marshall, who's a well-known African-American artist, mm-hmm. was actually the production designer on this oh, film. Wow. It won an Oscar for cinematography, and it's absolutely stunning to see. And because of Beyonce's Lemonade, mm. which drew heavily from this film, heavily. If you have watched Lemonade, you have seen some scenes that then you, when you watch the movie, you're like, oh, my gosh, the girls in those dresses, they're sitting on the tree just like that. Um, the At the 25th anniversary of the film, they actually uh, re-released it. And so it's it's much easier to find than it had been three or four years ago. So Daughters of the Dust is the name of it. Um, Check it out. Super poignant. I learned a lot about Gullah communities and just more so just about African-American life in general. There was a part in the movie that actually really got to me. Uh, You know, it's hard to imagine having a child as a slave and not getting the right to, to name that child. Or to, or to be forced to name it Western names. And to hear them talk about all of these, uh, quote-unquote, unusual names, mm-hmm. Iona, I own her. Whoa. Of course, Dang. you would choose names that are different than the names your masters would have given your children. And yeah. we see that to this day wow. with African-American names that, as white people, we, we, we may not understand and may have troubles understanding, well, why, why would somebody pick a name that's so different? Mm-hmm. Well, that it was just it was it was one of those moments that I needed to have. And so Daughters of the Dust and Laguna Gloria uh, has they have lots of film series and things like this. So take advantage of that. Uh, There are other organizations around town that do outdoor film screenings. And I hadn't been to one in this city. And I got to bring my son and share that experiment experience with him. So that's what I'm into this week. Awesome. Thanks for your toast, guys. Great. That's our show. She's Addie. He's Omar. I'm Tali. Check out the Austin 360 Instagram and Facebook for more about life in Austin. And talk to us on Twitter at loveaustin360. If you liked what you heard today, leave us a review on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher. It helps other people discover the show. 
I love you so much. The Austin 360 podcast is produced by Alyssa Vidales. The show is made with support from features editor Sharon Chapman and the entire Austin 360 staff. Our theme music is from local band Hardproof, which you should definitely check out at hardproofmusic.com. You can find more about the show and its contributors at austin360.com slash loveaustin360. And if you want to pitch an idea for the show or give us feedback, shoot us a note at loveaustin360 at statesman.com or leave a voicemail at 512-445-3672. We couldn't do this show without you, dear listener, and we can't thank you enough for lending us your ears, your comments, and your watermelon salsa bowls. Until next week, we'll see you standing in line to give your two cents at a city council meeting. 